Hello and welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast, where we explore Holocaust-related topics during the time of our new virtual reality. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Valente, Visiting Assistant Professor of Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. I'm Niels Romer, Interim Dean of the School of the Arts and Humanities, Director of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies, and Barbara Anstan Raven, Professor of Holocaust Studies. Hi, Dr. Romer. How are you? Hi, Dr. Valente. I'm good. I'm, this has always been a trying time these days, but it's nice to have a weekend for a change and to um, kind of once again regroup a little bit, think about what has just happened and to think a little bit about what is ahead of us um, next week. So definitely the Ackerman Center, we have some really exciting events coming up. Today we have a special program that we are teaming up with 60 other museums to commemorate the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. It's a program celebrating resilience, resistance, and hope. And this is taking place today, Sunday, um, at 1 p.m. And we will be definitely watching this um, virtual event. This is a wonderful collaboration and a very timely one. And this title, We Are Here, harkens back to the survivors of the Holocaust, the so-called remnants, the Sharita Pleta, that often announced quite loudly to the to the post-Holocaust post world, we are here, we have survived. And so um, in that respect, I think it goes back to how important resilience and remembrance is. And um, in that respect, you know, it kind of anchors very nicely much of also what the Ackerman Center is doing. And so we've therefore been really happy to co-sponsor and to co-promote that event. Definitely. And then we also have one of your lectures coming up in a few weeks. Yeah, um, just in about another 10 days, we are just about um, experiencing again the anniversary of what uh, is known otherwise as Operation Barbarossa. And uh, we're teaching right now a very popular uh, online class over the summer on Operation Barbarossa. And I'm, I'm largely not teaching the class, but I'm guest lecturing, so to speak in the class, and then I'm also giving a lecture in that same week about the same topic, uh, which to this day, I think is, is you know, in lo lots of ways, the marker for us, the, the moment when the Third Reich attacks the Soviet Union. This is in, for many the moment after the summer, after the attack in 41, that then all of a sudden we get into the dynamics that lead into what we properly call the Holocaust or genocide. So if we wanna understand the, the reasons, the timing and all that, that's largely the time frame many historians constantly you know, think about, the fall of 41. That sounds like it will be a really wonderful lecture for us all to tune in. This will take place on Monday, June 22nd at 4 p.m. And this will be done via WebEx, correct? That is correct. Um, and it's, you know, in lots of ways, and this is why I'm interested in giving that talk. I mean, to this day, we are still trying to understand you know, something about the perpetrators. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in many ways, in the aftermath of the war and the Holocaust, you would have thought that, they, you know, being interested about the perpetrators would have been very central. And in many ways, it was in a judicial way in the many trials. But true research in perpetrators really stems from the 1990s. So prior to it, we don't have much that really probes this question um, about who they are and what motivates them. And one of the key issues that is debated to this day between the different schools of interpretation 
the importance you know that one bestows upon ideology or shall we say anti-semitism and all that mm-hmm. and i think that's a, you know for us also a very contemporary debate again what is it that we're looking at when we when we are looking at racism mm-hmm. and how are we trying to make sense out of that um because i think there remains something that is utterly dis- de- perplexing for us and we're kind of you know trying to make sense out of that and um there are good many documentaries. I know you're um, a keen observer and watcher of some of those. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Definitely. So there's this really wonderful documentary that was done in 2017, I believe, and it's called White Right, Meeting the Enemy. And it actually won two Emmy Awards, a one Peabody, um, and it was directed by Dia Khan, who is a filmmaker who has largely focused her documentaries in her work on trying to understand the source of hatred. What is it that motivates groups to become active members in these extreme right-wing groups? She has also done another one that's about jihad. You know, what what is it that makes first-generation British children go back to Afghanistan and fight for ISIS, for example? There's another documentary that's really interesting. But the one we're talking about today is this one that's called White Right. And... Dia traveled to the U.S. She came here, I believe it was in 2016, where she wanted to follow some prominent neo-Nazis and some white supremacist groups and leaders to try and understand what is it that is motivating these guys. Um, And in this documentary, she is really fearless in going to kind of the center of where it's all happening, which at that time was um, at Charlesville. We all remember the horrific scenes that we watched happening during that rally. And through this documentary, we really, she really starts to get into kind of the psyche. What is it that makes these guys hate, you know, diversity, hate uh, other groups, hate uh, Jewish people, hate Latinos, blacks, and all of these things. So we see kind of a, a connection between um, not only just anti-Semitism and racism, but how all of this is all happening within a political context, too. And I know that you also watched the documentary, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you think of it. No, I, I couldn't agree anymore with it being really well done and very daring in many ways. But I think it also um, leaves you as a viewer sometimes perplexed as she's interviewing some of these individuals who are then kind of articulating their worldview. And you start to realize that there's not much of a worldview. It's fairly incoherent. Um, it's not, you know particularly well thought out. It kind of recycles a bunch of ideas that you have heard elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So if you come to it from the perspective of, and I think that's what I find perplexing or thinking about it along the kind of traditional, you know, ways in which we make sense out of this as a set of, of specific ideas Mm -hmm. that there's some kind of rational coherence to these not so much. And I think that's where we are to this day perplexed that our traditional ideas of what ideologies mm-hmm. are still harken back to the 19th century, where we still presuppose that ideologies have a certain self-coherence, mm-hmm. that they articulate an interest of a particular class or group. Um, whereas I think, you know, like you already kind of alluded to, the psyche, this is much more, not so much something that is very rational, but much more something that is very emotional. And I think 
that is precisely, I think, where we as you know historians, you know, struggle to understand how this mixture of emotional responses that get some kind of a rational, you know, overcoat, so to speak, kind of come together to the point that they can propel individuals to articulate this hodgepodge of ideas that um, they activate from replacement theories, from deep state theories, and that, you know, also horrifically these days have traveled around the world and, you know, equally used in France and Germany and England and, and the United States and, and so on and so forth. But it's, I think what is really challenging us is, is to make, figure out better ways to understand what we mean by ideologies and their mm -hmm. respective roles and compelling people. And, and we're still trying to figure that out with Operation Barbarossa. I couldn't agree more. And I think that there's something also really interesting about this documentary is that we see kind of two dimensions. So on the one hand, we have, you know, these guys who are at the forefront of the National Socialist Movement who are going to these rallies, you know, they're, they're going there to really make a, a loud statement. And then on the other hand, we also see when she's meeting with the, you know, quote unquote, intellectual. So this would be the Richard Spencer, who actually, right. you know, went to school not too far from where we live. So for those guys, they seem to to have this air of being intellectuals and their racism is really based on these kind of ideological theories. I mean, they, they try to come across as if they have really thought about this and to have, you know, they're not the ones out in the street. They're the ones trying to affect change on the intellectual level. And so we see in many ways that as incoherent as it is for us, these guys are really affecting that other group that has this huge void. If we think, you know, of course, we're not psychologists, but it's not difficult to see that the ones who are being drawn into this group are people who have something else that is missing in their lives. And, you know, most of them give their testimonies during this documentary where they're saying, you know, I had a really tough childhood. I, you know, I was beaten up and all of these things, right? They felt very powerless. And then all of a the sudden they're in this gang where they are the ones that are being feared so i think you know it's kind of like a two dimensions that really create kind of this very dangerous uh formula for the kind of the spread of what we see even happening now you know we can talk about how under covid 19 this pandemic that we're living in a study was done in england recently where one out of every five Brits believe that the Jews are responsible for COVID-19. This is, you know, this is, you know, the, the, the other kind of side where now everything kind of converges. Virtually every outbreak of every virus of every plague in history has always been put together with blaming some or another minority, most often the Jews. I mean, very famously, obviously, coming out of the Middle Ages, the Black Plague, mm -hmm. um, then again, um, 1892 with the cholera epidemic that trailed behind, you know, the the uh, migrants that crossed mm -hmm. the Atlantic. And again, here we have this, you know, assumption that indeed this could have been um, initially produced by Jews as a way of, you know, taking over and controlling China. And then it, it's, you know, it's, it's the same kind of logic or coherence of world dominance that you would find in Hitler's Mein Kampf exactly. on the protocols of the of the um, elders of Zion, highly anti-Semitic pamphlets, where there is a basic assumption that there, what we see on the surface is not really what drives our societies. So, you know, what I think is so compelling, you know, I guess, to, for individuals is that these kind of views – 
you know, they're, they're pre, they are, you know, presupposing something that we hear elsewhere. So in lots of ways, when you listen to them, there's a certain element that sounds as if they're talking about globalization. Then there's mm -hmm. another element that talks about, you know, our infatuation with our own identities that we want to preserve. And so in lots of ways, this ideology, uh, the, this set of ideas that they're putting together, it's a mixture of things that, you know, lots of ways doesn't sound so foreign or strange, but it's then put together with very strange ideas. And that, again, is not very different from Hitler's Mein Kampf or indeed from the National Socialist. The initial program was this hodgepodge of ideas that, you know, want to pr protect women, um, fought against big supermarkets, also racist, wanted to overthrow the Versailles Treaty. So it was this, you know, kind of hodgepodge of things for everyone being something. And I think some of that we see here as well. But most importantly, and I think that's what you said, you said psyche, and you emphasized that this documentary um, brings out, I think, a lot of, of what, what drives them, which is not the ideas, it's the kind of belonging, them exactly. together. And you can see that really when they're getting ready to their rallies, I think they get coherence in, in the moment when they're together. Whereas, you know, some of the people interviewed, they get quite stuck on, on the questions. They can't answer the simple tough questions and, and are quite embarrassed how to reconcile their views with her when she says, well, does that mean that you hate me or that I should be called like that? And then he said, well, no, I would not. But then that doesn't contradict the view. So there's something really puzzling about that. Exactly. And, you know, it, there's something really interesting in the sense, I mean, first of all, I think she's such a wonderful interviewer. She, in, with one single question, she breaks these guys down, you know, when she asks, you know, but what is it that drew you as a young kid to read my comfort, to want to do these things? And then these guys are like, you know, I never asked myself this question. Or you can tell that it's really bringing them to a very painful moment in their lives that drew them to wanting this kind of camaraderie and this kind of, you know, unity, we could say that these groups um, provide for them. But I think that this is where the danger really lies, you know, when we see this kind of coming together, not only of these ideologies, but of the moment that we're living in. And of course, we saw, you know, last week with the murder of George Floyd by the police and this kind of, you know, outpouring of support and protests and things like that happening. Well, we know that on the other hand, these other groups are also um, coming out strong, right? And it just happens in the United States for whatever reason, a lot of these extremist right-wing hate groups, I mean, these are have been identified as hate groups by the Southern Poverty Center, by the ADL, and they're still seen as legitimate groups that can have their rallies, that can freely speak. And then we see other groups that are now being curtailed on the left. You know, Antifa was just put on this list. So I think it's it's a really good documentary to show how these things all come together. But also, it is also very alarming, I think, because we're living, you know, it's one thing for us to study about how anti-Semitism played a role in the late 20s, early 30s in, in Germany. But it's quite another for us to see these ideas taking place right now in our time in all uh, with the in the backdrop of the COVID-19 um, pandemic. So, you know, it's, it's quite alarming, I think.
we're really in this troubling moment right now where all of these various things converge. We have on the one side a pandemic. We have on the other side um, what you know starts to look like a huge economic crisis mm-hmm. that will, if anything, result in further, as they say, redistribution of wealth, mm-hmm. meaning um, the social inequalities, if anything, will become bigger. Those are things that are felt and experienced quite painfully amongst some, indeed as a form of replacement, but they translate them, these replacements then into racial terms. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it becomes dangerous. And then it becomes even more so dangerous if it's now all of a sudden put together again with old anti-Semitic ideas, where the notions circulate that indeed the uh, virus, uh, you know, was developed or, or spread by, by Jews or other minorities. You remember early on, mm-hmm. it was associated with China. Um, mm-hmm. And then on top of it, we have this complicated, you know, reckoning or really over, overdue reckoning of an America and its own identity in terms of its own racial politics. And um, that's all in all, you know, um, it's fairly complex and, and, and also really un, un, unnerving um, kind of convergence of different ideas, which however in the end can also mean that maybe this was is overdue, that mm. maybe our societies are overdue to kind of have to find a new identity for themselves, one that is mm-hmm. not any longer in the traditional sense tied to nationalism nor to race. Mm. And, and in certain ways the European countries had tried to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. the European Union and had to stop or were stopped short on their way, so to speak. But it doesn't mean that it's, you know, not there, that, it, you mm-hmm. know, that the ideas are not still there. But I think for us, you know, what we really have to come to terms with is this, this emotional uh, appeal of these ideas. And, and I think we really don't do ourselves a good service if we think of these ideas like, you know, the ideas of liberalism mm-hmm. or the kind of you know, the the citizens of the 18th century who, you know, with reason, you know, contemplate their own fate and pursue their own self-interest and come up to, you know, plausible and logical conclusions about what their self-interest is. I think all of this deep down also undermines or threatens, you know, seems to indicate very different sense of ourself as an individual. Because what we see in these groups is not, you know, the individual who finds him or herself, but it's a very collective action. Exactly. And the identity only exists in that collective act, action, not any longer in, in the individual who decides, you know, I want to be this, I want to go to school, you know, I evaluate, assess, and I observe, and these kind of ideas that are so tied to our traditional ideas. Of, of the individual hearkening back to the enlightenment. So I think there's something, aside from the ideas that are being promoted, I think there's something very, very troubling about how our traditional ideas of self-identity are being challenged and, and uh, really thrown out of the window. No, it's definitely a moment, I think, this reckoning with the past, this reckoning with history, this reckoning with one's own you know, emotional connections to that past. And, you know, it would be interesting to see what happens as far as this coming to terms with the past as well. You know, I was just also recently reading the book by Susan Neiman, uh, Learning from the Germans. 
-hmm. where she discusses, you know, and you will do a better job of pronouncing this word, but the Vergangenheitsbewältigung, which is like, you know, one of these German compound nouns, but it's the kind of coming to terms with the past. It's, it's this process of working through the past. Right. And, and she makes a really interesting point that, you know, today when we think about Germany and we think about how Germans have been able to acknowledge the Holocaust and the past and these things, it seems as though it was something that's been, you know, that was an easy process. But in fact, you know, it's, it, it's a very complicated process that she, you know, she claims that it took a good 50 years. It was really 1995 with the exhibition, the Weimarker exhibition, that kind of brought all of this um, into a very public discourse of, you know, what had happened in the past and how do you understand the past as a country? How do you move forward? So, you know, and in, in, in some ways, I think that that is also a lesson that we can think about this very moment that the U.S. that we, we're living in this, you know, these last two weeks, we have seen incredible changes happening as far as coming to terms with the past in the United States when we think about memorials of Confederate soldiers and generals and all of these other things, right? Renaming of, of military stations and things of this sort, right? That in fact, you know, maybe there will be something actually quite productive and positive coming from all of this. We're able to say, okay, this is not okay. We move forward. Acknowledging, you know, I think acknowledging the ills of the past is so powerful um, in order to move forward as a country. No, I think, you know, that, you know, in lots of ways, lost what Germany had done, but over many years, painfully so at times and continuously challenged in many ways. So it was not a linear process. It was one that pitted generations against each other and whatever else. But I think what I find troubling in this moment is, you know, you or I might at any given point embrace certain ideas. And then if we do, you know, presumably we are open to at some point maybe change our views or learn. But the moment you tattoo a swastika on yourself, you're really committing yourself to upholding this view and you are never going to be troubled by the idea that what you quite literally now embody mm -hmm. might not be acceptable to others. So that's what I struggle with when I look at these groups, that there's no way to, to envision an easy return to them. Yeah. There's like you used the, the language of reckoning or something like that. So we can have the reckoning amongst that's ourselves, but, um, but how do you re do the reckoning with, with those individuals who quite literally have now inscribed themselves and committed themselves to this kind of worldview from here on forward and will not so easily let go of that, in particular since now their old, whole sense of themselves is tied as individuals. Mm -hmm. It's tied to that. Exactly. So that's what I, I you know, found really um, alarming in watching that mm -hmm. um, documentary. But then, you know, the future is also always open. I think anybody, I mean, we used the German example, anybody um, who would have, you know, looked at Germany in 45 would have thought it was, was going to be impossible, you know, to, uh, you know, affect any change. Mm -hmm. If you would have thought about the early American attempts to, quote unquote, re-educate the Germans, mm -hmm. um, that was, a, you know, a long, long process. And... Uh, but it can happen, I guess, you know, and so in that respect, I think every moment is always also open for, for there to be some positive changes exactly. in the end. Exactly. And I think that's, you know, where we have to think again about, you know, and there's something for us to learn if we go back to our 
Ackerman Center or uh, the School of the Arts and Humanities. We pride ourselves of being home to students from around the world. We all have to, you know, adopt, you know, sense of ourselves that what we do is potentially, you know, inclusive of any one of these students from 103 different countries. Mm -hmm. That whatever I do uh, embody, I, I do it in a way as a, as a person or as a teacher that, that is inclusive and not excluding any of, of these students. Mm -hmm. And I think if one takes that as, as one's yardstick, then uh, maybe, you know, that's a good way to go forward. Definitely. And there's something hopeful about that, you know, that we can aim to really live up to our mission, right? Teaching the past is changing the future. I think that's a really tough mission. And many times it feels like one that's really difficult to, for us to attain. But I think, in fact, this is exactly right, what you're saying. You know, we have to be able to reach people from anywhere around the world and who have, you know, many diverse ideas to be able to, to have these conversations. Because this is something that I think became really clear at the end of the, on the, of the documentary that we've been discussing, is that there were, you know, two, I think, of the guys who ended up leaving the movement because of their interactions with Dia, with the filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, because now we've become friends. And I mean, you know, you can kind of question the kind of friendship. But for these guys, just the, the fact that she respected them, that she took the time to talk to them, right? There was something about this that was kind of life-changing for these guys that it seemed like for the first time in their lives, they were talking to someone who was different, who they hated without really knowing, right? And I think that this is that moment where we really see, you know, it's a lot easier to hate something you don't know, right? The moment that you know, then all of these crazy ideas kind of crumble down because, of course, they're all based on stereotypes. They're based on non-facts, right? They're not based on reality. And so I think that's something that's kind of positive, I would say, is that we can see from that, from the film and then from our, you know, day-to-day -day interactions with other people too, that if you're, we are able to reach out to others, then there is a way for us to also try and make positive change happen out of this difficult situation. I think, I think, and again, you know, looking at Dallas and its diversity, looking at the you know, University of Texas at Dallas and our diversity, we have a real opportunity as well. Exactly. I mean, there's something really wonderful happening right now around us in the school districts and our campus where I think we can actually create a very new social reality that compels all of us also to learn something in the way we make sense out of the world, of people, of cultures, and last but not least of ourselves. So I think there's an opportunity in this as well. And uh, therefore, we just have to kind of stick to what we've been doing, educating, educating, educating. There's nothing wrong, and it's not old-fashioned. It's not outdated. Uh, it remains as important as it always has. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Romer. I couldn't agree more. Um, and we look forward to next time. So thank you. Thank you again for having All right. me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. You can find us on our website at utdallas.edu forward slash Ackerman. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Holocaust Podcast. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Today's episode was produced, edited, and engineered by Sarah Valente.